The views and opinions expressed by any hosts or guests of WJMS Radio do not reflect the beliefs of its owners or associates. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to WJMS Radio or the show hosts whose words, advice, and or opinions appear from or on our website or on air. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Are we on the air? You're listening to WJMSRadio.com. Jam. This chick is a sick individual. You're tuned in to Sound Off with your girl Jams right here on WJMSRadio.com. There is no competition. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Sound Off right here on WJMS Radio. This is your girl, Jams. I am here with you, quarantined in Yonkers, New York, but here nonetheless. Uh, I'm very, very excited to be with you guys. It's nice to share some new content and you know some relevant content based on things that are going on in the country right now. Um, so before we get into the show, I want to, of course, thank the folks behind the scenes that make Sound Off and WJMS possible. Thank you guys for all your hard work. And to the folks that tune in and listen on a regular basis and make me part of their weekend or weekday listen, whichever time you decide to tune in. I appreciate you guys also. And uh, I want to thank the folks that are sticking with WJMS, especially my hosts who even during this, you know, quarantine and crazy time are still trying to bring you guys content and and up to date episodes as much as they possibly can. So shout out to the team um, 100%. Uh, We have a great show for you guys today. We are simulcasting only on the WJMS Facebook today. That's the only one for now. So if you want to get in touch with us, You can either come in hit the room live on Get Vocal, or you can check us out on uh, the WJMS Radio Facebook page. Um, I am excited to bring to the the room with me today, I guess, if you will, uh, Dr. Margaret Anderson, who is uh, the Edward F. and Elizabeth Goodman Rosenberg Professor Emerita at the University of Delaware, as a lot to say, (laughs) but the author of several books. She's got two teaching awards. Um, And in 2017, she was granted an honorary doctorate from the University of Delaware in recognition of her scholarship, teaching and service. Um, And today we're going to be having a really great in-depth conversation about her book, Getting Smart About Race, um, an American Conversation. So, Margaret, welcome to the show. How are you doing today and how's everything going where you are? Well, I'm in Maryland and we're we're hanging in there and just hoping that everybody's safe. This I never would have imagined I'd be talking about this coronavirus when my book came out. Um, yeah. Listen, you can call me Maggie. I gather that your listeners, do they call you Jams? I've been calling you Jamie. What would you like me to call you? Whichever you feel comfortable with, I'm both. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, feel free to call me Maggie. My book is published as Margaret, but everybody calls me Maggie. And thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. So, I mean, I, first of all, I read through the book and it's like you said, it's a very interesting time. I think for the purpose of this broadcast, I'm not going to use the C word only because the algorithms and the folks uh, above are cutting and pulling content that relates to the, to the, ep- to the episode, if you will, okay. um, or fake news. So I'm going to call it the incident for the purpose of this recording. Okay. <laughs> uh, So, but in any case, so I read this book and it was really, really great. But before we get into that, you know, I want to give you the opportunity to expand on your your bio here that I have and give the audience a little bit more information on, you know, your upbringing, where you came from and and how you got to where you are today. Well, that's really a great question because as people who read the introduction to my book will find out, 
the way that I grew up, I think, is what led me as a white woman to be writing and teaching about racism in America. Um, I grew up in the, the first 10 years of my life in Oakland, California. Um, as a working class kid, the neighborhood I lived in at the time was predominantly white, but it was in what is now known as the Fruitvale District. Um, and ironically, when I now tell people I grew up in Fruitvale in the Bay Area, they think, well, you can't have done that. The white people don't live there. But yeah, we did. <laughs> and then in 1958, when I was a very young girl, my family moved to Rome, Georgia, small town in northwest Georgia it was the peak of Jim Crow segregation. So I moved from an urban area where I was at least exposed to different people into segregated schools, a world of racial inequality that at the time as a 10 year old, I just thought was weird. Um, because I didn't know what to make of it. Um, but quickly, I had to learn different norms about what you were supposed to do and not do. And, you know, when you're 10 years old, you're just trying to fit in with your school friends. But I just thought it was odd. Anyhow, we were only there for about three years. And my family relocated again to Boston, Massachusetts. And again, I was a young teenager. But what I remember thinking was that though there was not a law about segregation, my school was equally segregated to the Jim Crow school that I went to. Um, ironically, we moved again a couple of years later back to Rome, Georgia, and it was not until my senior year of high school in 1966 that my high school in Rome, Georgia was desegregated for the first time. That's 12 years after Brown versus Board of Education. So I grew up in all these really different racial environments and at some level must have been thinking about it. But I'll tell you honestly, Jamie, I was pretty clueless. What really opened my eyes were the social movements of the 1960s and 1970s. And frankly, my own college education, I had a teacher in my introduction to sociology class, which I took as a requirement, who was bringing members of the Black Panther Party into my class to talk about police brutality in the Black community in Atlanta. And I was like, oh my God, my eyes were opened. Um, and it, so at that moment, I think I, that, I don't know that I remember ever consciously saying, oh, I could make a living studying this because I really care about it. But it's some, in some ways, all those early experiences kind of led me to where I am now. So I've been teaching about racism in college for 40 plus years. And when I retired, I decided it was time to take what I know to the general public, which is why I wrote the book that you have in your hands. Yeah. And I mean, that's, it's so interesting that you say that because my mom actually is uh, was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and she grew up right during the, the 60s and 70s time. She, you know, became a Boston police officer and she dealt with a lot of racial issues wow. being a woman on the Boston police force and then being a black woman on the Boston police force during that time. So she has stories to this day that she won't even tell me, like stories that she's like, I can't even talk about it. Wow. You know, so well, just good, good for your mom. You know, yeah. I'm sorry yeah. you had to experience that, but yeah. yeah. It was, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I, I'm interested in, in what you have to say, because it's like a lot of people go through what you went through and don't do what you did. Mm -hmm. You know, like you took to heart what was going on and we're like, okay, this is weird. This is not okay. I want to talk about this. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of people just kind of internalize it and keep it moving as the way that things are and they don't pay much mind to it, you know? So it's, 
it's one of those things where like I really appreciate people that learn from their experiences and then want to mm-hmm. teach other people behind that. You know, like I think that 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 means a lot, and it, it shows the genuineness in in what you're talking about because you've been through it. You know, you're not just talking about it from behind a podium; you live through it, mm-hmm. so you understand what happened because you were there. Um, yeah. Well, I really have to credit many of my teachers, um, because to tell you the truth, when I graduated from college at that time, I had a minor in computer science. I was kind of a math nerd. I loved sociology, but it wasn't until late in my college career when I figured out that you could be a sociologist and actually get paid and make a living by studying things that were just downright interesting to me. But I really have to credit a number of my teachers, um, especially in graduate school, who really opened my eyes and set me on this course because I so admired them. And the two who come to mind, they were both men. One was African-American. I won't name him, but he's very well known now. The other was a white Southerner who had pretty much been driven out of the South um, because of his very liberal views on race. And so I really lucked out by having those two men. Actually, I will name them. One is Lewis Killian, rest in peace. The other is William Julius Wilson, who just retired from Harvard. Um, They had enormous influence on me so that when I started to write and teach about race, um, you know, it was largely because of their influence. But then I really was committed by that time to working on behalf of opening up education to students of color who had not previously been able to benefit from higher ed. And that exposed me to working with a lot more multiracial groups where we were all committed to the same projects. Um, I absolutely love that. And it's, you know, teachers, it's always like, there's always just those teachers in your life that you remember, you know, like the ones that made an impact that don't know that they're making an impact on you until like years and years later. That's why I have so much respect for teachers because like they don't know the impact that they're having until the impact is done, if that makes sense. That's right. That, yeah. It's you know, funny like, you'd say that because as a teacher myself, I've always said, I've just got to be really good to my students, treat them like human beings, not like little objects on a Scantron sheet or something, because you never know, just like what you said, Jamie, when you say something that will be meaningful to them. Um, and so I'm very careful with my students. Um, and, though I'm happy to not be teaching now. It was a lot of work. I really do miss having that impact. And yeah, yeah. I I also want to tell you, because you mentioned your mom as an African-American police officer. I actually did my dissertation research on a police department in the Northeast, which at the time had only recently desegregated. They had a department of, I think, about 500 police officers and only five of them were African-American. And I think only one of them was a woman. So when you mentioned your mom's experience, I was like, I should tell you that I wrote my dissertation on the police. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, a woman on the police force because in being a woman in a male dominated industry in general can be a little difficult. Um, But to be on top of that, a black woman during the civil rights time on the police force in a traditionally very much racist area of Boston. It's just like, I can't, one day I'm going to like tie her to a chair and just be like, you're going to tell me all your Boston police officer stories and that's it. Like, you know, try, please try to do that. (laughs) Now, if she won't tell her daughter, maybe she'd talk to me. (laughs) 
Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm going to try to work on that because I think it would be really good storytelling to hear like what really happened on the police force. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, but let's jump into the book. You know, okay. let's get a lot to unpack in this book. And I want to make sure I get to it, all of it if I can, but at least most of it. <laughs> Um, so first and foremost, I know this book was published recently, um, but given what's going on right now with the incident mm-hmm. <laughs> and the racial things that are happening with Asian Americans and Asians around the world, actually, in general, yeah. um, you know, it seems to like this book is ringing more true than ever, you know, because it's like, like you said, in a couple of uh, on page, like, I forget which page it is, um, but you said that race is, it's like, a moment, never been a moment like this in history, but it's also a moment repeating. And it was like, okay, and here we are again, yeah. repeating ourselves, you know, with racial incidents in our history. So um, I feel like, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how race is playing a role in what's going on with the incident and just, you know, what's going on in the country with the mm-hmm. unrest that's kind of happening? You know, because I mean, we've come off, we came off this unrest of, you know, Black Lives Matter, and we're still very much on that, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But now we're in this area where now it's more like Asian Americans and Asians are the the subject of the racism that's happening in the United States. So can you talk a little bit about how the shift is happening? And, and just given today's climate, you know, what do you think is going to come from all of this? Well, you know, that's such a, there's so many layers to your question. Um, So let me back up and I I will get to your question, but let me say that when I open the book by saying to some people, you know, this is a time like no other, I wrote that about a year and a half ago. The book came out in February, but I had basically finished it by last fall. Um, And what I was thinking of at the time was people's surprise at the rise of white nationalism, the march in Charlottesville, the you know slaughtering that we've seen of Latinos, Black Lives Matter, all of that. And because some people falsely had believed that we had entered a kind of post-racial world, many people, whites especially, were really shocked by the overt racism that we were seeing in our streets um, in the last, I'll say, three to four years. So that's what I had in mind when I wrote that and wanted to remind people of the horrible history of racial violence against many groups, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, many people don't really realize were, uh, had very high rates of lynching in the mid-19th century. When people think of lynching, I think they usually think of African-American lynching, which is, of course, also horrible. And then we've had a long history of hostility and exclusion toward Chinese-Americans, Japanese-Americans. So um, to come up to your specific question about what's happening with Asians now, I hate to say it, but I could have predicted the minute that this was identified as a Chinese problem, that these kinds of attacks were inevitable because people look for scapegoats when they're trying to put the blame on something that really they probably don't understand. Um, You know, you asked a broader question that really interests me, but honestly, it's too soon to really have the information that we need to answer the question about what the racial dimensions of this uh, situation that we're in right now, uh, what are the racial dimensions of that going to be? 
Um, one, you know, the, the data just are not being reported. I'm a sociologist. We're going to be studying this for years, probably long after I am gone from this world, which I hope is years from now. Um, but one of the things that we absolutely know is there will be a racial dimension to the problem that we're experiencing right now. Um, among other things, it's already well documented that for African Americans, there are enormous existing health disparities, which are going to make some groups far more vulnerable to disease than others. We also definitely know there's unequal access by uh, Latinos and African Americans and low-income white people to good health care services. So what we won't know for probably years to come when we can step back from this and actually study the impact of this on diverse groups is who's gonna be affected and how. But even the simplest things like who's eligible for sick leave, there's an enormous racial gap on that. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is that we're clearly seeing that it's workers in the service industry who are being really, really negatively impacted by this. Um, many of them are white. I have family members who work in the service industry. Um, they're out of work. They have absolutely no income right now unless they're able to get unemployment, which many cannot because of part-time work or whatever the particulars of their situation might be. So that was a long-winded answer to your question, but I think the questions we're gonna to wanna to know, we certainly there will be racial dimensions to this um, in maybe even some ways I can't imagine today. Uh, and we're seeing some of it in the violence that's being directed against Asian Americans. Um, but we will also see racial dimensions of it once we're able to step away and see which groups were really most vulnerable, both economically as well as in terms of health. And I, you know, don't get me wrong, we're all being negatively affected by this. Don't misread me to say this is only gonna be a problem for some people. I mean, I am a well-to-do white woman and I'm affected by it, um, but I do have healthcare. My income is still protected. Um, I don't live in an overcrowded environment that makes me more vulnerable to disease should the virus, should it come my way. So there are many answers to your questions, and I just would try to call on us to reach for our better angels in such a national crisis. Sadly, I'm not sure that everybody is doing that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, I wanted to start off the conversation with that, given that this is a book all about race mm -hmm. and to about some of the things that are currently happening. Yeah. But I, to to dive into the beginning of your book, you know, it, even in the introduction, you talk about getting smart about race, you know, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that means mm -hmm. and kind of give sort of like uh, for those folks who are listening and who may not have had the chance to read the book, uh, kind of give folks an idea of what this book actually is looking at and mm -hmm. what it's documenting and sort of taking role of? You know, there's really three dimensions to what I mean by getting smart about race. One is to recognize racism in the many forms it takes. And I say that because I think most people tend to think of racism as individual bigotry. It certainly is that, but it's a lot more than that. And it's built into the nature of our social institutions. So my book talks about that quite a lot. So getting smart about race means recognizing racism in the many forms it takes. And then secondly, the other dimension of getting smart about race is calling it out when you see it. 
Um, I think particularly among white people, people are afraid to talk about race. Nobody wants to be called a racist. Um, and so rather than take that risk, most white people just remain silent. And I think that only reproduces the problem. So uh, getting smart about race means recognizing racism in all of its form, calling it out when you see it, and then finally doing something about it in whatever way in your own world and situation you can do that. And for some of us, those will be small things like maybe educating ourselves more about race. Um, for others, it might mean organizing more conversations about race. People situated in a position where they have more power might be able to start programs on behalf of people of color or rewrite federal policies to change some of the practices that perpetuate race. So it's three things, recognizing it, calling it out, and doing something about it. I think one of the things I've noticed, um, I don't know if you've noticed it in like the last maybe two years or three years or so, we've we've seen these incidents of people recording racism as it happens and then it becomes a hashtag of some sort. Like, you know, Permit Patty, who's calling the police on little girls selling lemonade or, you know, just they, they make, um, I think that's part of it is like them making it public by recording it and kind of saying, look at what you're doing, it's wrong, you know? And then you see all the comments and the conversations of people going back and forth and stuff like that. So I feel like on some level, people are starting to call people on it a little bit more mm -hmm. and say, listen, you know what, we're not going to do this. Not only am I going to record this and talk about it, we're going to make you a trending hashtag so you feel embarrassed about, <laughs> you know, this implicit bias that you have, you know, against these, these types of people, whoever they may be, you know? And I think that that's, you know, part of it. I also feel like it's, it's helping, but not at the same time, because it's what it's doing is it's like a double edged sword a little bit, you know, like, do you know what I mean by that? Well, yeah, because it might shut people down. Um, if you're afraid that somebody's going to post some, you know, hashtag about you that's going to go viral, that somehow targets you as being a racist, that might not be the best educational moment um, for you to open your mind up. Because, you know, I can tell you as a white person, you know, I, well, I, I could probably think of examples if I wrap my head around it. But as I said, I was clueless growing up. I'm sure that as I grew up, I must have said or done things that I would now think, oh, my gosh, I'd be mortified. On the other hand, had somebody then, which, of course, they couldn't do, had posted some hashtag about me, it would not have encouraged me to learn more and move forward. So I think these conversations are hard. Now, you know, you've brought up social media. You're in a different generation than I am, so you're probably much more tuned into that than I am. It gives us the opportunity to have those conversations and connect people across physical spaces. But as you well know, it also provides places where people just mouth off with their racism. Um, and so, I mean, you've called it a double-edged sword. Like most things, there are contradictions in this being both a good and a bad thing. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's racism is learned. It's definitely yes. learned because it's I mean, even even me as a, a personal story, when I was growing up, you know, until this day, when I was growing up, my best friend was white. She's been my best friend since I was five years old. We met the second day of first mm -hmm. grade. When, you know, I forget either she came up to me or I came up to her, said, do you want to be my friend? She said yes. I said yes. And we were best friends, literally inseparable, you know, all the way through. Now at this point, you know, we're grown up and stuff like that. And we both have separate lives and we're both doing different things, but we're still like, there's not a day that goes by that I couldn't pick up the phone and call her or text her and pick up like we never missed a day. And I value that friendship. But I remember when we were, 
um, in first grade, we weren't necessarily going to each other's houses yet. We were too young for that. But as we got older through the grades, you know, I started to go to her house. She started to come to my house. And I remember, um, I think her mother, you know, mentioned her. She's like, oh, your friend is black. And, and my my best friend was like, no, she's not black. She's brown. Mm-hmm. Like, didn't think anything of it and kept on moving. And it was funny. Like, not that her parents are racist in any way, shape or form, but they didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, because they hadn't met me before. They hadn't seen me before. And they were surprised when I showed yeah. up that I was black. She was like, she's not black. She's brown. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it was like, it didn't matter, you know? And I, yeah. But it's like, you get older and as you, you know, you start to circulate into different groups and stuff like that and you get into different schools and around different people, you know, those instances of being aware of your race become much more evident. Yeah. You know, like there's yeah. a time when I've been followed around. Mostly if I'm in a group of people, I get followed around in the store. If I'm by myself, the incidences are lower. Okay. Um, yeah. But you always, you get you get the side eye from the people when you walk in the store, when you walk out, like to this day, yeah. I didn't steal anything. But if I walk into a store and they don't have what I want and I walk out empty handed, I still wonder if people at the desk are thinking, oh, did she steal something? Yeah, you what, know? yeah that's what scholars call the racial tax in everyday life. I have a, a good African-American friend and we sort of laugh when we go shopping together. She, she often says, oh, Maggie, you could shoplift. They're going to follow me. <laughs> so now clearly I don't. <laughs> Um, she could be the boy (laughs) you know you mentioned friendship because I want to back up for a minute and say you know I've credited my teachers with much of what I've learned but I also have learned an enormous amount from friends and colleagues um so when I say it's been my education that has been transformative it's been both my formal education but also my informal education um and I sometimes particularly when early on when I was working in some professional groups that involved people who were, you know, very mixed in terms of our racial ethnic identity, but whites were a minority, numerical minority of those in the room. And that was a new experience for me. And frankly, I sometimes just had to learn to listen and not feel like I'm the only one in here who really knows anything, or I'm an expert on this. I can speak up. Um, And so sometimes just being quiet and not questioning the experiences that people of color are reporting to you is one of the ways I think whites open their hearts and also their minds. Yeah. And I was going to ask you that question because in the book you talk about, you know, people or, you know, white people sort of shutting down when people start talking about Mm -hmm. racism, like, like, well, I wasn't a part of that. You know, don't blame me. That wasn't me, you know, one and so forth. And I wanted to ask, and I don't know that there's an answer to this question. You know, I seem to ask questions like that. (laughs) But I wanted to ask, you know, when you're bringing up slavery and mixed company and you see, you know, white people getting defensive or angry, um, I mean, what in your opinion is an appropriate or an acceptable response from a white person to a person of color who is talking about slavery? Like, is there, is there a response? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, aside from getting angry and shutting down, you know, what would be the appropriate response for somebody to be to say or do in that situation? Well, my hope would be curiosity to just, you know, try to put yourself in the other's shoes. Um, Now, we are many generations away from slavery. So even among African-American people, it's going to be like a probably a great, great grandmother or grandfather who would have been actually a slave. Um, But what I try to get my students to understand is it's not slavery per se anymore, but it is the distribution of wealth and property 
that begins with slavery and accumulates over the generations to get us to where we are today, which is that the even among people with modest, modest means, uh, the differences in black and white wealth and also Latino and white wealth are enormous. And wealth accumulates over time. It can be passed down generation to generation. So to have had you know, no ability to say amass land or hold savings accounts in banks that would give you good terms, right? That's all stuff that accumulates over time. And so for my students, you know, they would say, well, I wasn't alive during slavery. And I would say, well, of course you weren't. Um, but there are ways that as white people, we continue to benefit from actions of the past, which we have really had nothing to do with, but that pass on more invisible forms of advantage. Now you say that to some white working class person with no resources and they're gonna get mad at you, right? Um, so it, it's a complicated thing to talk about and what you know the, the language of the day has been white privilege. And a lot of people who are white who feel they have no privilege whatsoever really bristle at that term because they're struggling too right? But they're not struggling because of their race, right? They're struggling because of class, right? And they may perceive if they see, say, an African-American or Asian-American middle-class or even upper-class person getting some advantages that they don't have, they might start attributing that to race when actually it probably had a lot to do with other things. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, it was one of those things where, there's been a lot of conversations that I've stood around in and, and been a part of where, and even in classes where I was the only in a class, you mm -hmm. know, in a, in a class about race and I'm the only one. And I'm just like, Oh word. <laughs> like, yeah. Really? Yeah. So, you know, it's times where you're like, okay, what is an appropriate answer to this or what is an appropriate response? And I think what you just said hits the nail on the head a hundred percent. It's not necessarily that you were involved with slavery, but it's acknowledging the advantages that you may have right now because of the institutions yeah. of slavery and other, other um, sort of laws and regulations and rules that have continued to create this, this gap in between yeah. the classes and in between yeah. the So. And, you know, the other thing, and I really had to learn how to do this as a teacher, and I don't want to claim that I was perfect, but I think I got better at it. Uh, I was teaching classes called racial inequality, and I typically would have anywhere from 25 to 70 students in the classroom, the overwhelming number of whom were white, but there were, you know, Asian, Latino, and African-American students present. So from day one, walking into that classroom, I knew I had to make all of those students coming to it from very different perspectives. And even among the students of color, some of them were very conservative. I can't make assumptions about them either. But I had to create in my classroom that would enable people to talk because the white students were going to sit there and be quiet. And they're very well-meaning, good, nice people but they didn't want to be called a racist. The black students were afraid somebody would say something racist that would hurt them, right? I mean, all kinds of things were going on. So honestly, I used humor. And I talk a little bit in the book about this, where I ask the students, it, it disarms them for one thing, you know, how much money would you want to change your race? And they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. And I sort of act up a little bit. 
Um, and then I also asked them how much money they would want to never be able to watch TV or actually I'd now change it to social media. How much money would you want to have no access to social media again in your life? Well, the differences that emerged comparing students who were white, Asian, Latino, and black to those answers, which I would quickly calculate in class, were yeah. funny, right? <laughs> and some, I, I'll never forget this one black student stood up, the young black man. He said, you couldn't give me a million dollars to be white. And everybody was like, really? And he's like, I love being black. I'm so proud of being a black man in America. You know, it sort of set a tone from the beginning that allowed people to talk with each other. And what I would say about my book, since the subtitle is Conversation, you've got to work at the social norms you're going to establish from the beginning about how you're going to talk about such a heated topic as race in America. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a, that question right there would definitely put me at ease in the classroom. I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, I can, I can relax a little bit, yeah. but yeah, I, mean, I went to, I mean, my college, I went to a predominantly white institution. There were very, there were, there were black people on campus, but we knew who each other exactly. were. And when knew, you know, some random person was on campus, we're like, you don't go here. Who are you? Right. Yeah. The <laughs> sense that somehow you don't belong. Right. But it, I mean, more so like if it was like another, like if somebody had friends with them on campus would be like, oh, you definitely don't go here. You're a new black face that we haven't seen before. Uh -huh. Like we all knew who each other was. Yeah. So it was like we kind of took role, you know, like we we of course we we stuck together a little bit, but we also branched out and did our part to kind of not necessarily be the only we didn't want to be the only. But a lot of times we were the only in a classroom mm -hmm. and we were like, OK, we got it. Let's yeah. <laughs> let's let, let, yeah. let's just do let's go through it, yeah. you know, so. It's one of those things where you kind of, you either dig in or you clam up. <laughs> it's one of the other. You know, it's also interesting because hopefully you had really good faculty, but many faculty also don't know how to deal with that. Um, yeah. You know, and once again, I remember a time in my teaching when there was, I think only one, it was years ago, there was only one black man in my class and maybe a couple of black women, but the rest of it, you know, they call them predominantly white institutions, but from the point of view of the person of color, they're overwhelmingly white. That's what I like to call them, overwhelmingly <laughs> white institutions. But I'll never forget it because I was having the students introduce themselves and this one African-American man turned out to be the son of some incredibly wealthy black person who owns some huge number of parking garages or something across America. And, you know, from day one, it blew the stereotypes that my white students had that all the black kids must be coming from the ghetto, right? This kid was richer than any student in the class. So once again, those things that would disarm students' existing stereotypes, or in the case of you know, in workplaces or other places where people might talk about my book, disarming those stereotypes from the beginning is important to getting the conversation going honestly. I love that. I love that. So I know I want to I want to jump into this a little bit, um, but there's a lot of people that talk about race relations in the United States having gotten worse since Donald Trump has been in mm -hmm. office. I like disagree. Um, I wouldn't say they've gotten worse. I would just say now they're obvious. Mm -hmm. um, they were all they were always existing. It's not like these races just popped up out of the ground. Like, hey, what's up? I'm here yeah. now. They were always they were always here. It's just they didn't have the platform, the support, and the the backup to yeah. do what they're doing now and to, and to be where they are right now. And so I think that with the Trump administration, I think it's just unearthed a lot of 
racists that were were very much operating sort of like a black market type of yeah. situation. Like yeah. they see it as they didn't have the bravery to stand up and do what they're doing. Yeah. Now we're seeing more people with courage to to stand up and actually just be outright racist. And I think that that is something that people are shocked about. And I'm like, why why are we shocked? Like this is yeah. this is regular for uh, for us. This is regular. You know, like this is just oh now we're obvious about it. Okay, yeah. You know, it's which like, one would you it's rather like, be dealing with covert or overt racism, right? Yeah, you know, I almost feel like overt is a little bit better because the covert is the stuff that we're talking about now, the stuff that's lasted with us, Jim Crow segregation and, you know, caste systems and stuff like that that have been in place to continue to keep people separate and unequal on purpose. Like, yeah. the, oh, at least, you know, like if you're racist, OK, I know you're racist. OK, cool. Like, <laughs> you know, the, here's, the, I think I talk about this a little bit in the back of the book, because the fact that overt racism is now so apparent um, I like to caution people around that because it can make it can let other people off the hook, right? That well-meaning white people who may be covertly biased or not know anything about race or not take any responsibility for challenging racism can suddenly feel like they're not the problem anymore. Um, because we have had a lot of attention put on, you know, the racists who have been quite apparent, but. You know, I think the challenge we have is how, and, and, you know, frankly, I don't see myself trying to take on people who are totally resistant to change. I, I just, I'm not going to put my energy there, but nope. I want to put my energy to people who are at least open to thinking about race in new ways and thinking about race, racism as something more than just the work of individual racists. Yeah. I like yeah. that. I think that that's and you know the <laughs> metaphor I like to use. You, you use some like underneath the surface metaphor. I think of it as like a fireplace in the morning where there's burning embers, and all it takes is a spark, right, to make that flame up again. Um, and of course, well, you're I and your pardon better than mine. But <laughs> I said, well, you're a writer, and your metaphors are way better. Oh, no, than no, mine, no. I like yeah. your I like your ground metaphor is good too. In fact, I think I've used it as a deep vein in our nation's you know, earth or institutions. Um, and, you know, the irony of this is that you, you, met, you mentioned Donald Trump, and I don't want to, you know, get all political here, but he can make these outrageous racist comments and then turn right around and say he's not racist. What? Yeah, we're like... <laughs> what? I think a lot of people think that way um, because they don't understand what racism is and the many forms that it takes, both individual expressions of bigotry, the everyday ways that white people benefit from racial privilege without recognizing it for what it is. Um, yeah, there's just many forms of racism. And, you know, the the individual bigot is not the only one. No, there's so many more. I mean, there we could talk about environmental racism. Yeah. We could talk about caste systems. We could talk about the private prison industry system. Yeah. There's so many different ways that... Yeah there are schools in place and like housing developments and stuff like that, where you, we could really just talk for hours about yeah. the ways that racism exists secretly beneath the surface, you know, and it, it's, it's hard to, to wrap yourself around, you know, and I think you talk about this on page 16 of your book, you say race is a process and not a mm -hmm. thing. Um, 
can you talk a little bit about what that means and and why you think it's a process and not necessarily a thing? Because I think a lot of people are, like you said, people think it's the individual bigots and stuff like that, but people don't realize that there's more to race than that. So. Yeah, that really comes in the first chapter of my book where I try to get people to understand what race is. And in that chapter, I really criticize the assumption that race is somehow rooted biologically. Um, because we just know now from uh, contemporary genetic research and so forth that there is no such thing as race in a biological sense among human beings. So what I mean by race is a process is that it is racism that has produced the notion of race, not the other way around. And I think all too often people think of their race as only in terms of some individual attribute. And of course it is. I don't want to undermine that, you know, a proud Chinese, and although people don't typically think of the Chinese as a race, has a strong identity for what he or she is. African-Americans have strong identities associated with their race, positive ones. But this notion of race has really been constructed through history, right? That's where it comes from. It comes from the treatment of human beings not from something that is intrinsic to who we are. That's what I mean by it's a process. It's social, it's historical, it's manufactured by human beings, but it still has real consequences. Yeah. And I think going forward with that on four pages later on page 20, you say that without racial inequality, race would likely have no relevance other than showcasing the diversity of human right. life. And that's 100% true because if you peel off all our skin, we're all the that's same right. underneath. You know, you know, and I've, re I've relied on geneticists to show us that. I mean, they've concluded that even in genetic terms, you know, the degree of difference between human beings is something like 0.09%. I mean, we are very much alike. And you can't divide the human species or human beings into different species like you do birds and dogs and so forth. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, because it's... Yeah. We're all the same, literally, underneath all the skin. The history and society same. has created the inequality that we see. So one thing you talked about in the book, too, that you mentioned, and this was like, this was a trip, an absolute trip when it happened, was this Rachel Dolezal case where she was like a white woman who was pretending to be black for so long. She ended up being like the president of the NAACP. Yeah. And then like all this backlash, she ends up changing her name to something more African right. so that she's not it against. And, it's, and we're all like what? <laughs> like, it just doesn't make sense to us. For me, I read that and I read it with a smirk because I remember feeling like and reading her story and being like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, well, why? even that case, like, though, had, I mean, that was complex because you got to give her yeah. credit. I mean, she may have created a kind of false identity, but she was working on behalf of African-American people. She was. She had done a yeah. lot for us, which was crazy, but it the reason her reasoning behind like it just was like we we don't see people trying to be us right. like that you know like we talk about you know tans and hairstyles and you know big lips and all the, the stereotypes that they put on you know african-americans and you know then try to to emulate in society and it's like you don't see people really trying to literally be us right. you know like they just try to emulate us to the parts that they like you know and leave out all yeah. that extra part she literally was like I want the full story. Right. Like she, it was just weird. 
because we're like, what you you're opting into this? Like, you know, it is really interesting though, and she'd probably be upset with me if she knew I had used her as an example. But my niece, who's much younger than I am, when she was a kid, like mid teenager, she kind of constructed her. She's white. She constructed herself as black for a while. Um, and what I mean by that was she just started to tell people she was black. She happens to have very curly hair, um, which is a marker that people use, right? But she's white as I am. But she had all black friends. She was using, you know, black cultural in- engagement, all of that. Now, you know, we were all like, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but I think you sometimes <laughs> do see young white people kind of appropriating the cultural accoutrements of being black or being Latino. And, you know, I'm not going to judge them or fault them for it because maybe sometimes out of that come friendships and relationships that are important. But I think as one of, I can't remember now who says it in one of the quotes in the book is people want all the kind of cultural accoutrements of being black, but they don't want any of the disadvantage. (laughs) Exactly. Which is what Rachel Dolezal, she was just like, she was there for all of it. And we were like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I whatever you want to do. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that brings us to an interesting sort of question in terms of like, you know, race being um, not a thing, but a process and talking about the census process of determining race. Um, Because in the book, you go very much in depth about how the census came to be and like how the census is keeping track of, you know, the minorities and, you know, different classes of people in the United States. And it's like, I didn't realize that they had so many, I guess, changes that yeah. it went through. And I'm thinking now, yeah, you're right. Because what if you are like, how do you mark down, <laughs> you know? And it's as we start to have more interracial relationships and marriages and, and start to have children, it gets very complicated. And You know, the census, and everybody's going to see this because your census forms are, you know, in the mail or coming over your internet. Um, well, let me just say, it's really important for us to count and classify people despite all the problems of doing so. Because if we didn't do that counting and categorizing, we would have not have any way to document any, um, any discrimination that goes on. So, you know, I'm going to start out by saying we have to have this information and we have to have it for purposes of the distribution of resources, like where schools are going to go and where businesses are going to locate. They use census data to make those decisions. So it is important. Yes, people fill out your census form. Don't be undercounted. Having said that, when you fill out your form, you're going to see that the census takes some people and defines them as a race including like native Hawaiians, right? Yeah. I mean, they're going to be in the racial category and only Latinos or Hispanics get counted in the so-called ethnic category. And then white people have options to put in all kinds of national origins as part of their background if they want. I left that blank because why should anybody care that three generations back I was Norwegian? I mean, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be documenting discrimination against white Norwegians, right? Um, Oh, there is that. (laughs) um, So, yeah, so the way the census counts or classifies people by race, one has shifted over time, and it shifts because different political groups mobilize to 
to create ways that people are counted in the census. It creates nightmares for people like me because it does tend to change with every 10-year census. So it becomes really hard to do analyses over time when the categories shift. But the census also shows you the kind of social construction of race that we have at any given point in time. So there was a time, and you can look in the book for more detail about this, when you were either black or, or what you were either white or Negro. That was it in the census. There were also times when there were other categories that we now think of as not even existing. So the census becomes almost like a window into how we have thought about race at different points in our nation's history. And, I mean, you could look at that and you could also look at, you know, sexuality in the same way, because there was a time yep. on forms where you were either male or you were female. Now you're like, male, female, you're gender non-conforming, you're, you know, trans. Yeah. There's all these different options now trying to include more people. Um, but even that depends on where you're looking because you're not going to be given that option on the census form of 2020. No. Um, so, you know, that varies as well, too. I wonder if 10 years from now that'll be a section or section on the uh, census. Um, male and female, you know, they need to know male and female. So they're going to have to quantify yeah. information somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, even in terms of family relationships now, you know, the census did start allowing for counting same-sex marriages and same-sex partners, but only very recently. So there's really no, I mean, that shows you why it matters, because there's no way for us to go back and actually be able to measure using census data changes in that over time. Yeah, that's true. I never even thought about it like that, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're running up uh, up on time here a little bit. We only have 10 minutes left. I still have so many things to ask. Um, <laughs> so talking about this, reading this book, knowing what I know and, and having researched all of the things that I've researched, it seems like to fix this situation that we're in, we would need to like dismantle the entire everything <laughs> and just start from scratch and start all over again. But realistically, obviously that's not possible. So what are some meaningful steps or some meaningful ways that we can move forward um, as a company or as a country to improve race relations and to maybe start to even the playing field a little bit? You know, I think that's a question that each individual reader has to ask themselves. And I, you know, in the last chapter, I talk about change at the individual level and also change at the institutional level. Um, now, I'll yeah. just give you kind of a pie in the sky answer because this isn't going to happen. But if I were president yeah. of the United States, <laughs> I would um, establish a major commission and a major initiative to start much more. Um, oh, gosh, it would be so huge. It would need to be huge where you'd have community discussions, statewide discussions, uh, national discussions about policies that we can change. You know, one of the first things I think I would try to do, though, realistically, I don't think this is going to happen. We need to deal with the segregation in our nation's schools. The, because, you know, we were, you and I were talking earlier about how important friendship has been in our own interracial understandings and relationships. When you look at the data on how segregated our school systems are right now, that mitigates against young people growing up with friends who come from different backgrounds than they are. Uh, I mean, just huge majorities of Latino and African-American students go to public schools that are 90 to 100% Black or Latino. 
white students yeah. go to the most segregated schools because they go to the schools where almost all the students are white. So if we don't engage our young people in more cross-race relationships, then we don't have a lot of hope for change, for developing this kind of understanding. So I guess if I could only start in one place, I would start with schooling. Okay. I like that. I wasn't sure if you were going to have an answer for that question because it's, it's a, hard, a very it's a hard, hard question. question. To answer. And the reason our schools are segregated or well, there's many reasons, but one of them is that our neighborhoods are segregated, right? And then too many families, because they do see the quality of public schools, particularly when they're majority minority schools, you know, for good reason, want their own children to get a good education. So they don't send them there. And I think one of the consequences of that is disinvestment in public education. Um, I mean, I'm a kid who I went to all public schools all the way through from, you know, elementary through graduate school. I'm a big fan of public education. But I understand why parents want not to send their children, including Black and Latino parents, to the public schools because they're under-resourced and there's too much teacher turnover. Um, and some of them look like little police states, right? Hey, um, true. So. Now, I will tell your readers, I think, you know, everybody's got to decide for themselves where their strengths are for being a change agent. I can't change the whole world, but I can work to educate people. I'm fundamentally an educator. Uh, what I've done in the back of the book is there's an appendix there with a series of questions based on each chapter, because realistically, some people will only read one chapter of the book, right? Um, and so if you wanted to organize in your school, your church, your workplace, or at your, well, now it wouldn't be at your dinner table, maybe a Zoom chat, um, you can now have discussions with people about some of the topics in the book. And I would really love for that to be taking place on a widespread basis. Yeah, and I liked that about the book, too. That's why I was trying to get to that that idea of, like, what you can do to be the change mm -hmm. agent and the steps forward, mm -hmm. which is great. Um, but the last 10 minutes that we have, I have two more big questions that hopefully we can get to. The first one being reverse yeah. racism. Now, for me, like, I was interested in what you had to say about that because you talk about how, you know, as race plays out, you know, African-Americans or Black people can't necessarily be racist because, you know, it's you can't be a racist when the system's not designed for you, you know, if that makes sense. So I wanted to get your take on that. And if you can maybe explain to the listeners, you know, what you had to say about reverse racism, because I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll make it really simple. I make a distinction in the book between prejudice as an individual attitude and racism as a social and historical system of power and disadvantage. And so I'm not dumb. Black people can be prejudiced. OK, Latinos can be prejudiced. Black people might be prejudiced against Latinos. Latinos might be prejudiced against whites. I don't know. That cuts all kinds of ways. So I think every group, every person might hold prejudice. We know a lot about that from social psychology now. But to me, that is not the same thing as racism. Racism is a system of advantage and disadvantage that's been constructed over time through our social institutions. And so you can't, reverse racism to me doesn't mean anything. Now, when people use it, I think they perceive that somehow people of color are 
getting something for nothing, as if race is suddenly an advantage. Affirmative action becomes a big target of those who think there's reverse racism. But I think often when people throw that around, they just need to stop and pause and learn a little bit more and get a little bit smarter about race, what they are and what they're not. Okay, that's a good, very concise answer. I like that. <laughs> a big question. I was like, I want to make sure I get to this question because I know that that's a big thing. You know, a lot of people are like, black people can't be racist. And I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> let's talk prejudiced. about it. You yeah. know, I, I don't yeah. know how you would grow up black in this culture and not have some prejudice against white people. A lot yeah. of white people have mistreated a lot of black people, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. The last and final question I have for you before I give you the opportunity to shout out your contact information and where people can, of course, buy the book and everything uh -huh. is, do you think we're going to get to a point where race issues eventually just go away? And where, what is that point and, and how do we get to that point if we can? You know, honestly, I don't. I don't think this is too systemic in American society. I, I'll end this way so I'm not a total pessimist because if I were a total pessimist, I would never have become an educator and I never would have written this book. I think that we optimistically that we can make change. Obviously, we have made change. And on my very dreary days, when I think this is just never going to be solved, what I do is I look back. I think about what it was like when I was growing up. Um, I think about the lost talent and opportunity that I'm just using Black America as an uh, example here, that was lost by virtue of Jim Crow segregation. Um, and, you know, we have come a long way, I will say that, and I have to recognize those changes, but I also recognize those changes came by and large when ordinary people demanded change. We don't need to look to some savior. Uh, we certainly have big heroes and heroines in our past history, but it's when ordinary people organized to create change. So let's use the current moment to think about what are the racial dimensions of our current moment and what can we do about them? Because we are at a moment where we're seeing the holes in our national safety net, right? And those are holes that um, differentially impact both poor people, low-income people, and people of color. So now's the time to wake up. Well, there you have it, folks, from Maggie Anderson herself. <laughs> so find you and follow you and get a hold of you. I'm sure you dropped a lot of knowledge today and there's been so many great talking points. So if people want to continue this conversation with you and to uh, keep in touch with what you're doing, where can they find you and get a hold of you? Um, there is a Facebook page for getting smart about race. Um, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is, oh gosh, what is it? Anderson <laughs> underline MLA uh, or hashtag getting smart about race. Um, my email is easily available through the University of Delaware website, udel.edu. Um, and you can get the book in a number of places. The publisher is Roman and Littlefield. It's obviously on a big one. I'm not going to give an ad for them because they, they get plenty of attention. Um, but there's also a, a website called IndieBound, I-N-D-I-E-B-O-U-N-D.org, which is a website for independently owned bookstores. I'm a big fan of them. You can get the book there as well and support your local independent bookstore. Yes, folks, get the book. It's great. And it's short. Um, so it's short and cheap. It is. <laughs> 
it's a very, very short read. I was like, oh, this is great. But there's so much information packed into, you know, like 130 plus pages. I'm like, this is great. Like, I. Yeah. Like, thank you, Jamie. That's nice. At the same time. But um, Maggie, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with me. A great conversation. So many laughs and so interesting. You know, like I, I really got a lot of good information from your book. And I'm so grateful that you were able to come and share and expound a little bit more on these ideas with me today. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. And I wish you luck with your uh, transition that you're making. And please be safe in this new world that we're living in. I'm trying very hard. You do the same. Me too. <laughs> okay. So, folks, I'll be back again with a new episode of Sound Off next week. Make sure you stay tuned. Until then, wash your hands. Stay in your house. <laughs> we got to flatten this curve, folks, because I'm trying to get back to the movie theaters and back to my regular life. So <laughs> until then, everybody be safe and we'll catch you next time right here on WJMS Radio. Thanks. For the girls that don't need no makeup when they wake up For the ones who rockin' lace fronts, you know, I ain't gonna say nothing Hashtag me your single, you fresh off the breakup For the introverts, no, we don't gotta say much If you feel free, then you should live your
for listening. Tune in 24-7 at WJMSRadio.com.